Now, just to clarify uh, some, some things here at the start, you know, we don't want to be promoting any kind of tribalism um, in the front of our sanctuary this morning. And so the flowers, yes, they're red and white, I think, in honor of uh, Valentine's Day, not in, uh, in honor of whatever uh, our favorite football team is this afternoon. Uh, and likewise, um, uh, the, green, the green is, is up here because of uh, the liturgical season, um, not because um, of our favorite team in the game this afternoon. Um, so... I just wanted to clarify, you know, we're not trying to promote that, that tribalism this morning. Although my son is, so uh, he, he's got his Eagles jersey on uh, this morning, if you see, if you see Garrett. Um, yeah. Over the last couple of weeks, um, we have, well, at this point, uh, a month or so, We've been talking about what it might mean, what it kind of looks like for us to participate in sharing the good news uh, of Jesus. One, because, you know, in our phrase uh, here at Spring Creek, we believe we are supposed to be growing, sharing, serving, connected by Jesus, and, and we're kind of looking at that, that sharing part. What, what does that look like? What does that mean for us in, in our day, in our age, in our location, um, what, what does that, that look like? Um, but part of my purpose in wanting to kind of look at this and, and dive into sharing the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, how do we, how do we live that out? How do we um, demonstrate that in the way that we live? How do we announce that in, in our conversations, in our relationships uh, with those around us? Uh, part of my reason in wanting to do that is because I believe more and more um, people interact with the good news. People interact with uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They hear that more and more in our personal relationships with one another. That uh, in, in times past, maybe there were other ways that they first interacted uh, with, with the good news. But more and more, we live in a place where people's first interaction probably isn't going to be with the church, uh, the institutional church. It might be. It, can, it still happens. Uh, but more and more, it happens in our one-on-one -on -one relationship uh, with folks around us. And so we've been kind of uh, looking at what it means for us to share in the good news of Jesus. And by good news of Jesus, again, we're talking about the gospel story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Lord and King already, and one day uh, that uh, will experience the full expression of that when um, Jesus returns, and as the, the writer of Revelation says, uh, brings heaven and earth together. So we look forward to that. But in the meantime, those that claim Jesus is Lord now are invited to participate in what we've called God's mission in the world. That is to alert people to God's universal reign in Christ. If we believe that Jesus is Lord 
and that is good news or gospel. We believe that that impacts us in a number of ways for uh, our personal lives and our personal salvation. But we also believe that that means that there is reconciliation between God and humans, God and individuals. We believe that there's reconciliation between uh, person to person, between human beings that we can be working at. Even beyond that, uh, reconciliation between humans and creation and and, and different um, parts of God's good creation that begins to experience something of a, a redeeming and a renewing even now. And so we're invited to reflect glimpses of the kingdom of God or foretastes of the kingdom, little um, glimpses of what the fullness of the kingdom of God might look like someday. Uh, one author talks about... Um, living as movie trailers for the kingdom. You've watched movie trailers. Uh, they give you all the highlights of the upcoming movie, and, and it's supposed to um, prompt you to say, oh, man, that looks really awesome. i got to go see that. And, and the way that you and I live, the way the church lives in the world should prompt people to say, oh, man, i got to know more. i want, I, I got to experience more. Um, or, or a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. And so we ask ourselves, what does that look like in our day? Well, the gospel is the gospel, uh, which is about Jesus being king, conquering sin and death, and beginning to put the world to rights. But the way that that's communicated, the way that that's lived out, uh, does shift at different times. Uh, if you look at, uh, throughout the, the biblical story, there are different ways that God tries to get his, his message across to his people. And, and sometimes that happens through direct revelation, through uh, God speaking directly, some, sometimes audibly to people. He wants them to hear loud and clear uh, his message. Uh, at other times, uh, God is speaking through a donkey. Uh, he's speaking through a, a burning bush. He's giving his written word uh, to Moses, and, and, and um, they, they write the, the Torah, the, the way, the law. Um, other times, it's coming through prophets. Uh, we see the fullest of God's revelation to humanity in Jesus and then even through the New Testament, it begins to track how the apostles and others are beginning to spread the good news story of Jesus. And often that begins with them uh, beginning with the Jewish people. I mean, Jesus is coming and kind of, uh, he says, sent to the, the lost sheep uh, of Israel. Uh, but the message is going to go out beyond just that. And we see a little bit of how Paul will take the good news story into these different cities. He'll often start with the synagogue, with the, the, the local group of Jewish folks, and then we'll go beyond that. He'll go into uh, the, the pagan marketplaces, and he'll begin to um, share with people uh, about what Jesus is doing, what Jesus had done in his life, death, and resurrection. And so different cultural contexts call for different ways of sharing, and, and we'll be looking at that theme over in the next couple of weeks. 
But I think here in Jeremiah's letter to the exiled people of God in Babylon, it gives us an example of what it might look like to faithfully live out the kingdom in the midst of a pagan culture that isn't necessarily aware of what God is doing, that, that doesn't know all the stories about uh, Abraham and, and Moses, and they, they don't know what you mean by the Torah, and, and yet God's people are called to remain faithful and to demonstrate something of God's reign in this uh, pagan empire. So as we look at their story and as we think about our own story, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth and meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've spoken before in, in the past on some of the, the cultural shifts that seem to be occurring in our society, this movement uh, from a society that was Christianized, where, where there was at least a veneer uh, of uh, Christianity having influence in society, where people generally had a basic understanding uh, of the basic claims of Christianity, and how uh, our society has moved to a more, uh, a lot of folks use the term post-Christian society, where people don't necessarily know the basic claims of Christianity. Um, so if you, you're in a market, if you're in the grocery store, you're, you're shopping with, you're bumping elbows with some folks that know uh, in depth the story of Jesus. They go to church and, and, and they know the story of Jesus. But you're equally likely to have somebody who has no idea what the basic storyline of Scripture is. And more and more that is uh, becoming kind of a, a reality uh, that, that we live in where people don't know those claims. Um, there's been a, a growing distrust of the institutional church uh, due to moral failures within the church, and, and there's been a, a movement towards a more uh, secularized society. I've spoken about that in the, in the past. Do you want to engage in further conversation? We can do that sometime. Uh, but we're not going to do a, a deep dive into these shifts today or, or too much commentary on that this morning. Um, I don't think anyone needs too much convincing that our culture looks very different than it did 10, 15, 50 years ago. Um, you, we've all kind of experienced some of those shifts uh, in our society. And so we're going to kind of take that for granted and, and move on, uh, but that's a, a little bit of the background here this morning. A little bit of the, the context of Jeremiah and why Jeremiah is writing this letter. And again, I've preached on Jeremiah 29 before. It is one of my favorite uh, passages of Scripture. Uh, because of the situation that Jeremiah is addressing, because of the way he's calling the, these people of God to faithfully live in the midst of this empire, in, in the midst of a place that does not look like home, I believe that speaks so much into the situation that the church in the United States is beginning uh, to experience. And so, yes, uh, it's a... It's, it's a passage I've spoken on before. It's a passage I'll speak on again. Um, 
But I think it offers an example of living faithfully in the midst of this monumental societal shift for the ancient Jewish people. They have been exiled. They've been kicked out of their home. They're no longer living in the promised land. They no longer have access to the temple. The temple has been destroyed. And so they are kind of uh, suddenly in this unknown place. What does it look like for us to be a faithful people here? They're exiled from their homeland and uh, all the prophets point to this exile being a consequence of their unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel and, and Judah. They're exiled into a pagan empire that doesn't hold the same beliefs that they do. So in the midst of this place, in the midst of this exile, what does faithfulness look like for the ancient Jews who are exiled into this unfamiliar place, into the midst of a people who are unfamiliar with Yahweh, God? And Jeremiah writes this letter and sends it to the people living in exile. It's worth noting here at the beginning just a few of the things that are not mentioned in Jeremiah's letter. Uh, some, some things that he leaves out. He leaves out mentioning anything about uh, revolt or armed rebellion. Um, he's not even recommending a, a, a protest here. Now, maybe protest plays a role in our um, secular democracy. That might be a different story. But at least for uh, Jeremiah, when he's writing to these people, he's not advocating any armed revolution, any armed revolt. Instead, he's calling them to go and to abide there, to take up residence in this place. He tells them to go and to build houses and live in them. It looks like taking up residence, and we talked a couple of weeks ago about um, incarnational ministry, about going and being with people, residing with people, um, going through the ups and the downs of life and society and uh, you know, markets and inflation and all that stuff with people of living with people and demonstrating a faithfulness in the midst of our community. Jeremiah calls them to plant gardens and eat what they produce. Um, So I I love Jeremiah just for this line alone. Uh, Plant gardens and eat what they produce. But But a couple things about that garden. It takes time to set up a good garden. When you set up a garden, it is not like uh, we're going to be here for a short time. You don't go on a vacation and plant a garden. When you go and you start tilling up ground, when you start adding amendments to soil, when you start uh, you know, planting um, strawberries that you know, the first year you're not going to do anything but pick off blossoms, or you plant asparagus that uh, it's going to be several years until you start to um, harvest anything from those plants. When you set up a garden, you're saying, I'm going to be here for a while. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Put down some roots because you will be here a while. 
Jeremiah tells them to take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. He's calling them to, uh, saying, don't stop living your lives just because you're in exile. <clears throat> don't just give up. Don't just, you know, be hands off, but continue to live life. Continue to, to raise your families. He says uh, there to, to multiply, to increase in number, which is interesting. Uh, it sounds like be fruitful and multiply, which connects back to the very first instructions God gives to creation. This is the, you know, the, the, the project of creation from the very beginning, to be fruitful, to multiply, uh, for humanity to, to be co-stewards of God's creation. And here we're hearing a little bit of that glimpse that God's initial project is not on hold because you're in exile. Be fruitful, multiply, even here in exile. And then Jeremiah says, seek the, the welfare uh, of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in, in its welfare you will find your welfare. That word welfare there is, is the, the Hebrew word shalom and, and a lot of times we um, translate it as peace. Uh, welfare is kind of a, a, a maybe a, a helpful uh, translation of that word, there's a, there's a wholeness to it. It's not just um, absence of conflict. It's, it's a presence of God's Spirit. It's seeking um, everyone's mutual well-being. It's seeking the best for people. And so Jeremiah is calling them to move into the midst of a pagan empire to take up residence and actually seek the whole well-being of that place. Which I think, if I, if I try to put myself in the shoes of uh, an ancient Jewish person who's just had you know, their, their cities surrounded and destroyed, has witnessed, uh, you know, these pagan empires coming in, uh, destroying the temple. I'm not sure that seeking their whole being, their, their, their well-being, their wholeness, and their peace is something that's going to be the first thing on my mind. Because I'm probably going to be upset. I'm probably going to be mad. I'm probably going to be um, angry. Uh, I'm probably going to be hurt that, that, that the temple is no longer there. And Jeremiah is saying to them, I want you to reside there and I want you to seek their whole being, their well-being, their wholeness. Because in their wholeness, you're going to find your own wholeness. Now, I believe for these people, these... Um, ancient Jewish folks that are living in exile, <clears throat> that for them to move into this place looks like maintaining something distinctive about continuing to follow the ways of God, for, the, for the, the Jewish people, for continuing to follow the Torah, and yet actively participating in society to see it move towards a more holistic way of being. 
For some of them, it might have looked like conducting their business and their commerce in God-honoring ways. It probably means discerning how to engage society and how not to engage society, when, when to participate and when to withdraw. That, that's a, a, something that happens uh, through folks getting together and discerning how God's Spirit is moving, discerning what it means for us to be faithful. Should we participate in this aspect of society? Music, uh, movies, um, different things that are happening, business, or how do we engage in those things? And when do we need to withdraw? How do we uh, be a, a distinctive people even in the midst of this place? For the the ancient Jewish people, it meant adapting their religious practices. Uh, When they no longer could go to the temple because the temple had been destroyed, they formed this synagogue system where there are local places of worship and there are local leaders of these synagogues and there is their pattern of worship that they, they meet in these places. But they can't go to the temple anymore once a year to offer their sacrifices. Um, God's presence is then kind of distributed across these synagogues. Remember, when they have the tabernacle and the temple, that represented God's presence in their midst. And so if you want to know that God is in our midst, you go to the temple and there God is residing. But when they no longer have access to the temple and its synagogue systems, it, it changes some of their religious practices And they have to adapt. And so for these ancient Jewish folks living in exile, Jeremiah is calling them to abide in these ways, to to take up residence, to to seek the welfare uh, of of these folks. We kind of see this demonstrated then throughout um, faithful people trying to follow Jesus and, and demonstrate the kingdom. In the, early Jew, Jew, uh, in the early Jesus movement, um, how did they seek the shalom of their communities? Again, Jesus seemed to kind of cross out open-armed rebellion and revolt. Um, these were always possibilities under Rome um, following in, in Jesus' life. Uh, there were different groups before Jesus, after Jesus, who had tried the, the route of armed revolt, revolt and, and rebellion uh, against Rome. They had attempted it, and you know, most of them had failed and ended up on, on crosses of their own. Instead, Jesus demonstrates a different type of revolution. Last week, we looked at a a story in in Luke of um, the 70 being sent out, and one of the things that we highlighted was that they go and they stay in a house. They uh, uh, abide in a place for a time, and they look for what they could do to demonstrate the kingdom and to announce that the kingdom of God had come near. And so they were with people, and, and seeking their wholeness sometimes meant healing people who were sick, casting out demons of people that were being in, infected by uh, these demonic forces. It, it, it meant, um, you know, feeding people. And so they go and they also announce that the kingdom of God has come near. 
The early followers of Jesus committed to living out the ethics of the kingdom of God. Maybe most exemplified by uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew or, or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. The followers of Jesus were noted for feeding the hungry. They cared for the sick in their cities. When, when a plague would, would come um, and wreak havoc on, on an ancient Roman city, oftentimes uh, those that could afford to, the, the aristocrats, the, the wealthy, were fleeing the city. They were going to their, you know, their residence down in Florida or you know, whatever. They were getting out of town because they didn't, wanted nothing to do with the plague that was in the city. And, and often uh, we we have records of Roman officials who are recognizing that these groups of Jesus followers are sticking behind to care for the sick. They're risking their own welfare in order to seek the welfare of the place that they live. These folks attempted to conduct their business and their careers and their participation in the markets and commerce in Christ-like ways. Our sermon title this morning, To the Glory of God and My Neighbor's Good, um, is a phrase that uh, in, in the Church of the Brethren we've associated with Christopher Sauer, who was a an early German immigrant into uh, the colonial United States living in, in Germantown. And he had, uh, among many um, occupations or vocations that he had, he was running a printing press. And, and in that printing press, he had a sign that reportedly said, to the glory of God and my neighbor's good. In a, in a letter that he wrote, he said that he tried to publish that which is to the glory of God and for the material or eternal good of my neighbor's. And in the best examples of our, our brethren heritage were folks who attempted to remain faithful to the callings of Christ, who tried to live in ways that were faithful to the ethics of the kingdom. And also attempted to seek the wholeness of the places they lived and they let folks know that they were following Jesus. So they attempted to demonstrate and to announce the reign of God. I think in some of the best examples, they didn't live um, cloistered lives that just said, well, that's all bad and we want nothing to do with it. They didn't just group into holy huddles. Now, there are lots of examples of brethren and like-minded groups gathering into holy huddles and saying everything is bad. I'm not sure that those are the best examples of our faith tradition. Where they just say, you know, well, we're just going to worry about ourselves and pardon the expression, but I believe that this is accurate to hell with the rest of you. I believe the best examples are those that tried to remain faithful, who lived in uh, distinctive ways, but engaged the neighbors around them. There's a, a story, and uh, I won't, I'll skip the name of uh, who I think it is in our brethren heritage. Someone was asked, you know, are you 
a Christian. And he said, I don't know, you'll have to ask my neighbor. And what he meant by that was not, not that he was questioning his beliefs, not that he didn't know and stand firm on what he believed, but if you wanted to know if he was a follower of Jesus, you needed to ask the neighbor to see if he was living consistently what he said he believed. And we're going to spend a, a future Sunday looking at some of these ideas that we've tried to hold together in tension between proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom of God. But what about for us? What does this look like for us? I think we are meant to live lives that reflect those same ethics of the kingdom. If you want to know more about what we're talking about, again, there are lots of places in Scripture that you can look at, at what it means to follow Jesus, uh, the, cultivating the fruits of the Spirit. Um, uh, for us, we often say Matthew 5-7 to 7 is a good primer on what we mean by the ethics of the kingdom, where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount talks about what does it look like for, for you to live out a faith that claims Jesus as Lord. And so I think we're called to continue to reflect those ethics. That if Jesus is Lord, then we should attempt to live in ways that are consistent with the kingdom of God. Not as a, an attempt to um, gain our salvation or to, to curry favor, extra favor with God, but as an outgrowth of what the Spirit is working in us. If we believe Jesus is Lord, if we believe that Jesus is really about redeeming and renewing and restoring all of creation, but each of our personal lives as well, then I think we're called to live in ways that are consistent with the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim. And it seems as though the ethics of the kingdom, the way Jesus calls his followers to live, is largely about how we treat those around us. Clothing and feeding the needy, working for healing for the sick, living in patterns of nonviolence, yes, but more peace and wholeness, and even attempting to pursue reconciliation. This is a part of the outworking of the good news of Jesus. Part of alerting people to the reign of God is attempting to seek the wholeness of our communities. So I wonder what Jeremiah's letter to the exiles of Christ followers living in America, I wonder what that letter would look like today. Would it include taking up residence or, or some form of building homes. Some groups have chosen to take up residence in what they call abandoned places of the empires or neighborhoods that have been run down and, and neglected by um, systems uh, around us, and neglected by the government, uh, neglected by um, other outreach uh, programs, and they've chosen to abide in those places and to seek the wholeness of those communities. I believe gardening would remain as a part of that call. 
Not just gardening, but helping others learn how to plant gardens and and raise their own food and to address issues of food security for the vulnerable. I think Jeremiah's letter would still include raising families that continue the shalom-seeking work of the kingdom of God. And, and I can attest that, that raising kids in what can feel like exile is very difficult. Figuring out what parts of society and culture uh, they're ready for and which parts they're not ready for. Um, especially when all my friends get to. That's hard work. Discerning how we raise our families in the midst of exile. Not only for parents, but also others that surround children, grandparents, aunts, uncles, those that are, you know, kind of like adopted moms and adopted fathers, and, you know, those that surround our, our, our children and our youth. We need to do the hard work of raising kids and youth and introducing them to Jesus because this is kingdom work too. We also need to continue to seek the shalom of the city, the wholeness, the well-being, to work with others that seek the shalom of the city, to partner with organizations um, who help to accumulate a, a collective effort to extend the shalom of this place. As a congregation, I think there's a number of organizations that we attempt to partner with that kind of take our effort here at Spring Creek and uh, the efforts of our friends over at uh, First United Methodists and Dairy Presbyterian and other uh, Hershey Free, and, and we kind of work together to, to seek the wholeness and the well-being of this place, of this community, of our neighbors in Hershey and Palmyra and Hummelstown and the surrounding areas. I think some of the ways that we're attempting to do this, seek the the shalom of this community, might come through the parsonage ministry. Might come through hosting cocoa packs or uh, through the food trucks where small business owners can make a living and the community can gather for fellowship. I, I, I hope that there are different ways that we are trying to seek the wholeness of this place. And sometimes we also need to take a step back And we just need to listen to what's happening around us. To hear the heart and the heartbreak of the community around us. Listening for what shalom might look like in their context, in their situation. We need to learn to listen to God's voice. Um... Jeremiah has this interesting line about not listening to the prophets that, that they want to, not listening to the prophets that are saying, everything's fine, everything's dandy, it'll be all right. And I think there's a lot of prophets um, even that, that claim to be uh, following Jesus that maybe we need to tune out as well. We need to discern together what it looks like to live faithfully in this time, in this place, learning to listen to God's voice. 
One of the most famous lines in this passage is Jeremiah 29, 11, which we often kind of take and, and we individualize, which is, that's fine. I don't have an issue with that. God knows the plans that he has for our personal lives. Uh, but Jeremiah is writing to a group of people. And so it's a collective you in, in the way Jeremiah writes here. For God knows the plans he has for us. Plans for our own shalom. To give us a future with hope. So I think part of what it means for us to alert people to the universal reign of God through Christ is by you and I living lives uh, faithfully trying to embody the kingdom of God, trying to seek the wholeness and the well-being of those around us, of demonstrating and announcing the kingdom of God has come near our neighbors, to our co-workers, to those that we live with day in and day out. This morning we're going to conclude our service. Um, I'm going to invite you to turn in the blue hymnal to number 369, Lord whose love in humble service. And would you stand as we sing this Together, um, following the service, I'll invite um, our members to kind of just hang out. We have a, a council meeting uh, following the service. If you've got uh, other obligations, um, you're welcome to leave. We'll have a short uh, time of transition here. Uh, we'll be done long before the game this afternoon, uh, so don't. I don't want to hear anybody say I've got a Super Bowl thing to get to. Uh, that's not a good excuse, but uh, would you stand as we close our, our worship this morning? <laughs>